0: good morning to everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, hey, I'm coaching my soccer, uh, girls soccer team again to, uh, this year, and it's been, been a lot of fun. We have a picture of the team, and uh, we got five ECCers in the picture, four of them human. We've got uh, three of the four, co- three of the four, co- well, actually four of the four coaches are from ECC, and then there's my daughter, Andra. We got Coach Ray, we got uh, Coach Cam, myself, and Coach Bob. Some of you know Bob. He's, uh, he's one of our assistant coaches this year. Well, we with our team, we play all of our games on two fields. So all the games we play this year are on two fields. We've got Westfield 4 and we have Eastfield 5. That's where all our games are played. And we love Westfield 4. We love Westfield 4 because we are undefeated on Westfield 4. Our first three games are on Westfield 4. We came away with three wins. But then our schedule banished us to an evil fallen place called Eastfield 5. And it is a site of great trials and great tribulations. Our first game in the evil Eastfield 5 was a heartbreaking loss. Heartbreaking loss. And then our second was an unnecessary tie. If you ever coach, you know what I mean. Unnecessary tie, all right? So that brought us to our third game on the evil Eastfield 5 against the fiery red Phoenix. It was last Wednesday. And our team was faithful to our game plan. And when the ref blew the final whistle, when the final trumpet sounded, we were able to rejoice in our first hard-won victory on field number five. And there was cheering, and there was celebration, and there were freezy pops for everyone. And I think even Coach Bob cracked a smile on that glorious day. Now... Ours wasn't the only soccer game happening last week. Did some of you get a chance to watch our U.S. women's team win the World Cup? I think we have a picture of that as well. Here they are in the celebration when the whistle blew on this glorious day. Our U.S. team hoisted the championship trophy, and the other team experienced weeping and gnashing of teeth and the agony of defeat. Now, does winning matter? Sometimes it does. We teach our girls about the importance of playing hard and all that kind of thing. But there are times when winning matters, like World War II. Imagine a world under Hitler, right? There are times when winning matters. Sometimes it's a really big deal. And for the last three weeks, we've been talking about a final victory that is to come, the victory that matters The most, It was secured on a cross, but there's still that day when we're all going to celebrate now that it's over, that it's over, that it's over. And that victory celebration, that's going to be one that you want to be a part of. You do. You want to be in that picture. On that day, it won't be a ref's whistle that signals the end. Here's how it's going to play out according to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever on that day. And for eternity to come, there's going to be some that will experience the thrill of victory like none other. And there will be others who have a very different experience. Well, we've been, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about this final victory. We've been looking at the end times. And we've covered a lot of ground in three weeks. Here's a quick recap of what we've covered for the last three weeks. In week one, we started with what did Jesus say about the end times, right? He's the one coming back. What did he say about his own second coming? And we read all of Matthew chapter 24. We took a look at what Jesus revealed about how history is going to end, what he said about preparing for it, and one of the things he said is the day is going to catch you by surprise. You're going to be caught by surprise. So he said, here are three things to to do. He he straight up taught on this, and then he gave us three parables, but three things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do as we long for that day and wait for that day. Number one, keep watch. Number two, steward God's talents. And three, love the least. These are things he taught us. In week two... Brandon did a great job in this. Brandon looked at at what are some of the things that Paul said. What did the apostle Paul say about the second coming? Well, we took a look at how Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors, they looked at this day as something to be excited about. It was a blessed hope, to use Paul's words. They believed that all the hardships that they faced would pale in comparison to the victory that awaited the faithful. And then last week, we explored what the scriptures say about an unholy alliance, that's waging war against the kingdom of God. We took a look at deceptive antichrists that are already here, that uh, do a number of things, including denying that Jesus is the Christ, and two, minimizing the significance of sin. And then one of the things we also read is that in the last days, deceivers uh, deceivers will come, and believers will be persecuted by them, as well as many are going to buy into the deception, and the scripture uses the word they're going to shipwreck their own faith, shipwreck or abandon their own faith. So there's, that's what we've covered in the last three weeks. And we're going to continue that trend of trying to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time because today we're going to look at the book of Revelation. We're going to spend a week looking at the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free. We always keep a stack of Bibles at both of our entrances. We'd encourage you to grab one on your way out if you don't have a Bible at home. All right, let's look here as we start this look into Revelation. Let's look at what Revelation says about itself in, in chapter 1, verse 1. There's an there's a introduction to, uh, to, to this book, and, uh, and here we go Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 3. Here's what it says about itself It says, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant who? John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God in the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads these words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and do what? And obey what it says, for the time is near. So here we go. This is what Revelation says about itself. In the opening sentence, we learn it is a revelation from Jesus to John. We also learn that the recipients of the Revelation will be blessed if they hear the message and they obey it. Does obedience to God's laws matter? Yes, obedience matters. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so now we, we have an introduction to this book. It tells us what it is, but then comes the interpretation part, and that's hard. In fact, Revelation is arguably the hardest book there is to interpret or understand and in your notes we have an outline that I encourage you to follow along with and we list three reasons why there's more reasons than this but here are three reasons why I think the book of Revelation is so hard to understand and let's start with this first one I think it's hard to understand because John wrote it And I am one of the people who have a hard time reading John's writing. He doesn't, I like Matthew. Matthew's straightforward, grouped, organized, you know, really nice. Luke is like that, usually pretty straightforward, organized. I really struggle with Paul. I really struggle with John. If you have a hard time understanding John's writings, you're not alone. In fact, here's something that the ESV Study Bible says about uh, John's first letter uh, that we call 1 John. Um, He writes, they write this about 1 John. They say the rhetoric of 1 rhetoric of John is challenging. John rarely sustains a clear line of argument for more than a few lines or verses. He wanders from subject to subject. And I love this next phrase. He's unencumbered by any discernible outline. Yet if he has no plan, he does follow a pattern. After leaving a subject, he often returns to it. John's style of thought has been termed circular rather than linear. He states themes, moves away from them, and then revisits them with variations. Why am I telling you this about another letter that we're not looking at right now? I'm telling you because I think, I'm one of many people who think he does that in Revelation as well. That there are times where he says something, he expresses one of these revelations, and then he circles back to it using a different lens. Now, that's controversial, and so I'll put that out there, but we'll take a look at an example of that in a couple minutes. So I think Revelation is hard to understand simply because John wrote it, and not all of us can track with John as well as some others can. But that's not all. Here's another reason why Revelation is hard to understand. It's hard to understand, number two, because it is a genre mashup. It is a genre mashup. Many different types of literature are contained within this one book. There's more that I'm going to talk about right now, but let's talk quickly about three. Revelation is a letter. It contains prophecy, and it's written in a form, an ancient form of literature called Apocalyptic. Let's start with letter. Revelation is a letter. It is addressed to first century churches in seven cities of the Roman province of Asia, which we now know much of this region to be Turkey. All of these seven churches addressed there are in the western uh, side of Turkey. These churches were facing challenges that many churches are still facing today, such as false teaching and persecution and idolatry and immorality and spiritual complacency. And so this is a letter to these seven churches facing these issues as well as other churches facing the same thing. So, Revelation's a letter, but that letter also contains prophecy, prophecy. In fact, Revelation itself says in chapters 1 and I believe it's 22 that this is prophecy. New Testament prophecy is especially challenging to interpret because a lot of New Testament texts. A prophecy is the unpacking of Old Testament prophecy. Now there's a whole lot of stuff I had to leave on the cutting room floor including a great quote that I put in your blue insert. On the back of your blue insert it says interpreting prophecy at the top and I'd encourage you to read through that either later this afternoon or at some point where I get a little slow or something along those lines. But there's a great quote about how do you interpret New Testament prophecy in light of the old and they use a great analogy of a mountain range which I think was really good. So it's prophecy it's a letter, it's prophecy, and it's apocalyptic. The word apocalypse is derived from a Greek noun, which means revelation or disclosure or unveiling. And apocalyptic writers would utilize lots of symbols and numbers and word pictures as they attempted to describe this huge conflict between the forces of light and darkness that are at work in our world. So... If you're reading something apocalyptic and you try to read it as you would just a science book or a historical narrative, you're going to take it out of context because embedded in apocalyptic literature is a lot of symbolism and a lot of allegory and metaphor. All this to say it is challenging, challenging to read this book. In your green insert, I included some helpful resources that might be good ones to look at. Not because any one of these is the right one, but precisely because none of us have this all figured out. And I think it's really helpful to look at different resources and compare and contrast what other scholars have to say about the text. Also, Terry, could you raise your hand? Terry, you guys, in September, you're starting, there's a Bible study. They're starting up. They're going to do how long in Revelation? Bible study 30, weeks. 30 weeks. So we're going to do it here in 30 minutes. They're going to take 30 weeks. That just shows you, and you won't get done with it all. Like, in terms of unpacking everything, there's that much there. So if you want to talk to Terry, she can tell you more about a Bible study on this where you can really go into depth because it's an important book. All right, let me give you one more reason why it's hard to understand. Hard to understand. Then let's talk about why we should read it at all. The third reason why Revolution, Revelation is hard to understand, I wrote order schmorder. Order schmorder. Um, remember what we said about John sometimes circles back to things? I'm one of many who believe not everything in Revelation is in chronological order. So if you try to read it like, okay, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, you may be reading it wrong because it's probably not that simple. Let me give you an example. And again, this is controversial. I'm just putting it out there as one way that many of us look at this book. It appears as though, again, he circles back. Let's compare Revelation 12, you might want to even write these references in your notes. Revelation 12, 7 through 11, they all come from there. And Revelation 20, 1 through 6. And let me just quickly show you how there's so many parallels. In Revelation 12, you've got a heavenly scene. In Revelation 20, you have a heavenly scene. In Revelation 12, you've got an angelic battle against Satan and his host. In Revelation 20, you've got a presupposed angelic battle with Satan. In Revelation 12, you've got Satan cast to the earth. In Revelation 20, you've got Satan cast into the abyss. In Revelation 12, you have the angel's evil opponent is called the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. In Revelation 20, the angel's evil opponent is called the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. He's restrained from deceiving the nations anymore to be released later to, quote, deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. In Revelation 12, Satan is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. In Revelation 20, Satan is set free for a short time after his imprisonment. In Revelation 12, Satan's fall is results in the kingdom of God and his saints coming full, full force. And in Revelation 20, Satan's fall, you've got described, resulting in the kingdom of Christ and his saints. One more. Revelation 12, the saint's kingship, based not only on the fall of Satan and Christ's victory, but also the saint's Faithfulness even unto death, holding out of the word of their testimony. And then there's a description in Romans 20. We've got the saints' kingship based not only on the fall of Satan, but also their faithfulness even to death because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. So, you may have situations where you're reading something in Revelation and he could be looking at the same thing through a different lens. Again, that's controversial, but there's several people that see that. So, Revelation, challenging, challenging to interpret because some of what we read has already happened, some of it is happening, and some is yet to come. Some of what we read in Revelation is literal. Some of what we read in Revelation is clearly symbolic. Some of what we read in Revelation, it is laid out in chronological order. Sometimes it appears not to be. And then you have the fact that many of Revelation's prophecies are connected to specific prophecies that occur occur in Daniel and Ezekiel and other places, and they're meant to be read in light of those earlier prophecies. So one of the things, like I said earlier, I would encourage you to do is to take a look at how different people interpret this. If you listen to just one of them, you'll usually go, Yeah, that makes sense. It fits up with everything. And then you read another one, and you go... Yeah, that makes sense. It fits up with everything. And as you start to read many of them, you start to go, okay, here's the overlap, here's the disagreement, and all those things. One word of caution, though, that I want to give you as you compare and contrast. I want to urge you not to spend way too much time, or or actually too much time at all in all the debating of all of the non-essentials. I really want to encourage you not to, to go down that path. Because if anything, if anything, Revelation teaches us that our time is short. Revelation teaches us that there is an adversary who would love nothing more than to have a whole lot of people getting really good at Bible trivia and living trivial lives. He would love that. To go back to our soccer analogy, because soccer analogies are just the best, aren't they, Scott? They're just the best, right? So go back to our soccer analogy. Imagine the World Cup was on the line World Cup is on the line, and the U.S. women's team is sitting, huddling up at their bench while the game is being played. And the U.S. women's world team, while the game is being played, the other team is scoring at will. They're saying, you know, are our away jerseys white with blue or blue with white? Let's talk about that. We don't want to be doing that, do we? With The book of Revelation, where we argue about non-essentials, and we're not engaged in the things that the scriptures talk about. Let's agree to disagree on non-essentials. Let's focus on the fact that every minute is one minute closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Can we agree on that? All right, amen. That's what we should focus on. And with that, now let's turn a corner. We've been talking about why the book is hard to understand. Well, now let's talk about why read it at all then. If it's so hard to understand, if there's so much controversy, if there's so much disagreement, why would we read this book alone at all. So let's, here's three reasons why I think it's worth reading. Number one, through it, John reveals unique canonized content. Let me define terms a little bit. This canonized word. Canon in this context refers to official authorized scripture. The book of Revelation is official authorized scripture. The people who are in the best position to vet all of these documents They went through the process, and they said, this is the real deal. Were there other letters circulating in that day that didn't make it into the Bible? Yes. Were there different prophecies that were circulating in that day that didn't make it into the Bible? Yes. Were there other apocalyptic writings circulating in that day that didn't make it into the Bible? Yes. And there are good reasons why. And there's good reasons why Revelation did. This is official. This is scripture. This is canonized content. And some of what John reveals through it is, is unique to John. You're not going to find it anywhere else. If you have a red-letter Bible, one that prints the quotes from Jesus in red, you'll find that there's a lot of Jesus quotes in Revelation. There's a lot of Jesus quotes in Revelation, including some that you won't find anywhere else. You'll also find symbols and numbers in there, like the beast in 666 or a thousand-year period that we call the millennium that you don't find in any other book. So there's certain things you're going to find in there that you're not going to find anywhere else, including some things that are said about Jesus that that are very vivid in Revelation. Here's one. Let's take a look at this. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, says this. This is about Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And his mouth, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this leads us into another reason why we should study the book of Revelation. Number two. John provides vivid descriptions of a judgment to come. And I think a lot of us need to hear this because there are people who grew up in churches where it was judgment all the time, and that's not a healthy thing. But growing up in a mainline church, never once did they talk about judgment. I don't remember a single message ever on judgment. Well, here's an example of something that, again, comes from Jesus himself, um, this revelation In Revelation 6, look what it says. And if you want to turn to this one, it's uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Then the Lamb opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished Bible says that there are many false prophets and there are many false teachers who have come. It says that in a number of places. And one of the things that they do sometimes is they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Consider the imagery here. Sun becomes black. The sky itself vanishes like a scroll. The mountains and islands aren't where they're supposed to be when the trumpet sounds and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, if people aren't servants of that king of kings, they're going to be crying out to these mountains, hide us, these rocks, hide us. Does that need be our destiny? No. No. That's why the Bible, the gospel is called good news. Good news. Because it's not, it's not the, the good news is, look out, judgment is coming. The good news is you can be a part of the victory. That's the good news. And that's the, the one I want to end on here as far as why I read this book. Because John provides vivid descriptions of the victory to come. Can I get an amen? I'm Amen. He does. It's vivid. Like Paul, John held on to a blessed hope. And for me, it's really important to remember as I'm reading Revelation, John is last man standing here in a lot of ways. Paul had been killed. Peter had been killed. John's brother, James, his fishing buddy, had been killed. At this, Matthew had been killed. All of the original disciples except for John were dead, and John was in exile. So as John is writing about this blessed hope, he's writing from this place of it looking like he's losing. It looks like the dragon's winning. It looks like the beast is winning. It looks like the antichrists are winning. It looks like the false prophets are winning. It looks like the false teachers are winning. It looks like everyone's winning, and he's holding on to hope. So this is rich. This is deep. And how could he do that? You know, how could John hold on to hope when it looks like he's losing? I'll tell you how he can hold on to hope. Because there were scriptures that spoke of a Messiah who would come. And did those scriptures prove true? Yes. Because John heard Jesus say, I will die and be raised again. And did Jesus die and rise again? Yes. So John was able to look at the scriptures when they talked about a day of the Lord that was coming when all would be as it should be. And he was able to say, The scriptures are true. I can hold on to this. And he was able to say, Jesus of Nazareth told me he's coming back. And if he could die, if he died and rose again, can I trust him? Yes. Yes. So if the scriptures say, there's a day coming when Jesus comes back. And if Jesus himself said, there's a day that's coming when I'm coming back, can he be trusted? Yes. And on that day, all of us who place our faith in this blessed hope, when that day comes that is revealed in the scriptures and promised by Jesus, we will experience the victory of all victories. Here's just one description, one of these vivid descriptions of what that day will be like, and it's one that I've quoted at pretty much every funeral I've ever had to officiate. This blessed hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy, and these words are true. So why should we read this book, even though it's so hard to understand? Because these words are trustworthy, and these words are true. And they still give hope to the persecuted church. And they still give hope to those who are on the receiving end of injustice. And they still give hope to the faithful who are resisting temptation and denying desires when it looks like everyone else is indulging in them. And they give hope to the faithful who have lost loved ones. And they give hope to the faithful whose bodies are groaning for the renewal of all things. And they give hope to the faithful. When it appears as the dragon and the minions are winning. These words faithfully testify that a day is coming when all will be as it should be. A day when the temporal will yield to the eternal. And the faithful who listen to these words and obey them will be blessed. Will be blessed. Why? Because here's the last thing to write in your notes. Because we're invited. Invited into the what? Victory. We're invited into this victory. The victory over sin and death, it came at a great price. All great victories do. It's not a great victory if it didn't come at a great price, right? All great victories come at a great price, and this one did. A hard-won victory was secured 2,000 years ago on a cross just outside of Jerusalem where Jesus destroyed sin without destroying us and that same savior who secured our victory he invites us to share in his victory and he says lay down your own life that's how we secure our victory revelation 12 10 through 11 says this i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down and they have conquered him By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto what? Death. Even unto death. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? That you're proclaiming Christ and you love not your own life even unto death. That you're willing to say, I'm going to take up this cross and follow. That's an important question. Because as I read the book of Revelation, I don't see a blessed hope for those leading a lukewarm life. I don't. In fact, there's passages to the contrary. Revelation speaks of a book of life. John mentions it in chapter 3, and then he circles back to it about five times. Is your name in that book? Are you among those who reject all other idols, all other gods? And you say, my identity will be in Christ and not in any other lower identity, not in any other desire, not in any other pursuit, not in any other goal. But my identity is going to be in Christ. He's my king. I'm his servant. May his kingdom come. If that's the case, then that victory to share in that. And you're, whoever's going to take that picture is going to have to stand way, way back because there's going to be a lot of us. And it's a picture that I want all of us to be in, right? So let's pray to that end. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you've revealed how history will end. And we thank you so much that you give us these reminders to stay awake and not to fall asleep and that, that you've built in this sense of urgency to live this life out because the day will come and it'll catch us by surprise. And those who are found faithful and true will share in that victory. Lord, may we be among those who are faithful and true. And we thank you, Lord, for making it possible that we can be forgiven no matter what we've done. So, Lord, regardless of our past, we pray that all of us would turn to you now fully and and yield our future before you, that we would trust you with everything, that we would not cling to a lesser God, or lesser idol, or lesser desire, but that we would open ourselves up to your spirit, that your spirit would change us from within and give us the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ and the power to live as Christ lived in this world where it often looks like the forces of evil are winning. Lord, help us to hold on to that blessed hope with everything we have and to pass that along to everyone we can. Give us wisdom how to do that as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple closing things as we wrap up. I want to let you know there will be people to pray with you in the back. If you want to pray about anything, whether it's these things or anything else, we'd love to pray with you. Um, Also, I want to encourage you to come next week. Next week is our last week of this series, and we're going to wrestle with a tough question. Every generation since the time of Jesus has thought, okay, he's coming back, and he says soon, so it probably is now. Well, that's been 2,000 years. If Jesus said soon, why hasn't he come back yet? We'll do the best job we can wrestling with that question as we wrap up the series next week. God bless you. Have a great, great, great week.